worship team. Good morning. It's a chilly one to be out and about. I'm glad we have everyone here this morning. We can go ahead and open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to actually try to get through chapters 22 and 23 this morning. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in 22. And Genesis 22 is one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. And it's one of my personal favorites. So Abraham is here. He's just finished that exchange with Abimelech in chapter 21. And some time has passed. And now God is going to test Abraham. He's testing his faith. Having received the promise from God already that Isaac would be the son of promise, and that through him a nation would be born, Abraham's faith is put to the test. This is the first time that we encounter the word love in the Bible. There are many places in the first 21 chapters that love could have been mentioned. And yet, God saves it for this moment to describe the affection of a father towards his son. It's the first time that we see the word lamb in the Bible. There are many altars mentioned, and many times that it would have been fitting to mention a lamb, but it's not there. God saves it for this moment when Isaac asks, where is the lamb? The crucifixion of Christ is usually looked at from the perspective of the Son, Jesus, as he is scourged and hung on the cross to die. That's the usual perspective. Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 show the crucifixion from that perspective, the Son's perspective. Isaiah 53 shows the crucifixion from the believer's perspective. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell a lot surrounding the cross, how he got there, what happens afterwards, but are remarkably brief when Jesus is actually hanging on the cross and they crucified him there. In Genesis 22, we're shown the crucifixion of Christ from the Father's point of view. We get a glimpse into God's heart as his son suffered and died in our place. That is one of the reasons that I believe this chapter is so, so remarkable. We get a glimpse into the Father's heart. I was visiting my parents' sophomore year of college, and I had just sat down in a big comfy chair that they have there to take a nap. And my mom was in the room with me. She was about to nap with me, and she got a phone call. And she answered the phone, and Cheney had gone on a fishing trip with some friends, and it was one of those friends' dads who was calling him, calling my mom. And my mom could tell that something wasn't right, and the dad said, I need you to meet me at the hospital. 
Cheney's been in a four-wheeler accident, and he's pretty hurt. I don't know exactly what's wrong, but I need you to meet me there. And this guy was a former law enforcement officer, so we knew he knew what he was talking about. So we got in the car, my mom and I, and raced to the hospital. And when he got there, Cheney was grimacing in the back seat. His legs were propped up on the back seat, and he couldn't move them. We didn't know the extent of his injuries at that point, but we knew that it was bad. They eventually figured out that he had broken both femurs, a wrist, and they later figured out that he had a concussion. So on both sides, the femurs had broken and they had kind of slipped next to each other, that bone. So they had to put him in what they called traction to straighten everything back out. And that's just a fancy way to saying they needed to pull his leg to slide his femur back down into place. We were all kind of huddled around him in that emergency room and they began to literally crank his legs back into place. And, you know, obviously my family being there was heart-wrenching and we would have done anything to take that pain away from him. But we were helpless as we watched the doctors work. He had been already fully dosed with whatever kind of painkillers they were giving him. And so he was fully medicated, but at that point the pain was stronger than the medication. And I very much remember the screams that he let out during that process. And I will tell you, as a brother, I wanted nothing more in that moment than to take that pain from him. And as we look at the crucifixion of Christ, from the Father's perspective, I want to point out a major difference between what I experienced with my brother and what our Heavenly Father experienced with his son. And that's beside the fact that this was brotherly love and not the love of a father. You know, that in itself is a difference, but in that moment, though I wanted more than anything else to stop his suffering, I could do nothing about it. I didn't have that power. I was helpless. But as the Son of God was beaten and mocked, marched up to the hill to be crucified, the Father did have the power to stop it. But he restrained himself because it was the only way. There was no other way to reconcile his creation. You. Why? What kept him from intervening? Quite simply, it was love. It wasn't the nails holding, holding Jesus to the cross. That didn't stop him. That didn't keep him there. It was his love for you and me. Because in those hours, your sin was placed on his back. 
the just reward for my actions, your actions, was being poured out on him, the innocent lamb. And that was the only way that we could be reconciled with God. And that is love. Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Now, there's no mention of Lot being tested, only Abraham. There's no mention of Lot being tested, only Abraham. Abraham is tested here. God is not tempting Abraham. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He will not tempt us to do evil. And there's a really practical application there. When a coworker is really grating on you, and you can just feel your emotions boiling up, don't think, God is really tempting me to lash out at them right now. I hope I don't do that. Because God is not tempting you to do that. More than likely, it's just your flesh flaring up. It's probably not even the enemy working in you. It's probably just you. We struggle enough with our own fleshly impulses. That next verse in James, James 1.14, says that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, though God doesn't tempt us with evil, God will test you. He will. He will put trials and difficult things in our path designed to test you. That is the hard truth of it. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The first instance of love in the Bible. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Did you notice that God calls Isaac Abraham's only son? Well, I thought he had Ishmael too. And by this time, he probably had several others. But God doesn't recognize Ishmael as his son here. God doesn't recognize the works of the flesh. In the same way, if we do something for God, but in our hearts we seek approval from men, he knows that. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Matthew 6.1 God is only concerned with the works of the Spirit here for Abraham and also for us. Is there further application of this to our salvation in Christ? Of course there is. We are born once by the flesh, but the second birth occurs by the Spirit. 
when we confess Jesus as our Lord. That's why it's called being born again, because it is a second birth. Work done in our flesh can't bring us closer to God. Only regeneration by the Spirit. You see, God respects the Spirit. This verse, verse 2, contains that first mention of the word love in the Bible. And as I mentioned, this word is used for the Father's love of the Son, Abraham's love for Isaac. It's no coincidence that this chapter happens in the same place that our Heavenly Father would show the ultimate display of His love. So many years later, Jesus would die in this very mountain range that Abraham offers his son. God says, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Moriah means chosen by Jehovah. And truly, this was the chosen place. This is where God would come as a man and offer himself up for the sins of the world. So what does Abraham do? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He probably rose early in the morning because he didn't get any sleep the night before. You know, but regardless, he sets a precedence here. He gets up early. There's no delay in doing what God has commanded. And as you read through verse 3, you'll notice the repetition of the word and. This is a form of grammar known as polysyndeton. It's a repeated use of a conjunction to provide an emphasis. The Hebrew language used it here to speak of a continued, immediate action. And we should all note that there is no hesitation in Abraham's obedience to God. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Continued, immediate action. Verse 4, then on the third day of travel, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham, Isaac, and the rest of their traveling party were traveling for three days. Three days. And they finally reached the base of the mountain that they would climb. It's no surprise to us on this side of history that these three days are very significant. This is really all that's said about their travel days in the Old Testament. But we get a little nugget in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. 
concluding, this is Abraham's conclusion, that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. At the end of that little passage, it tells us that Abraham's faith in God allowed him to believe that his son could be raised from the dead if it was necessary because he believed God's promise. He was told by God that Isaac was the son of promise and that from him a nation would be born. He believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead in order to fulfill that promise. And at Abraham's time, there had been no other recorded resurrections. That would have been the first. That is remarkable faith. And this last phrase, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense, Hebrews eleven nineteen, that tells us that Abraham regarded Isaac, his son, as already dead on that three-day journey, right? The moment that God commanded Abraham to give his son as a sacrifice, Isaac was dead in Abraham's mind. He had already determined to obey God. Abraham had decided to obey God's command to sacrifice his son. And as they journeyed to the place where he would prove his faith, He was already mourning the death of Isaac. And when God provides a sacrifice on the mountain, which we'll see here in a moment, Isaac was resurrected in Abraham's mind in a figurative sense after three days. This parallels the next lamb that God would provide on that very same mountain. After three days in the grave, a miraculous resurrection. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. What what is going on in Abraham's mind? He accounts his son as dead. Then he turns around and tells his men, we're coming back. I, I can't really understand this. There's a, a faith there that is so potent, and this is what faith should do. It should allow us to treat things that are not yet as if they were. Treat things in the future as if they're in the present. And that seems to be exactly what it's doing for Abraham. Now, it's been estimated that Isaac would have been in his 20s or even up to his early 30s at this point. He was no longer a little boy. He was a grown man. 
And that's usually not the picture that we get in the Sunday school version of this account. But he would have been very capable of carrying the wood they needed for their burnt offering. It says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. A child couldn't have carried all that wood. But since Isaac was in his 20s to early 30s, he was able. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac notices that they have all they need to worship God, except for the most important part, the offering. There's some kind of a realization that's happening with Isaac right here. And there was certainly an awareness in both of them that in order to properly worship God, innocent blood had to be shed. Sacrifice requires blood. Worship requires blood. Isaac says, I see we have everything but the blood. Dad, where's the lamb? The first mention of a lamb in the Bible is right here. The question is, where is the lamb? And then the first mention of the word lamb in the New Testament is in John chapter 1, verse 29. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make no mention of a lamb. Then in John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. As if to answer the question, where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? Behold, there's the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How Abraham's heart must have been breaking as he turned to the son he loved and said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham was being obedient to God's call, and it hurt. It cost him something. I want to ask a question just for you to consider. Did Abraham know he was acting out prophecy? Did Abraham know that what he was doing in that moment was acting out prophecy. I don't know that there's a very clear answer. Did he know that what he was doing was typifying the sacrifice that would be made many years later on that very mountain? How aware of that was he? I suspect that he had at least some knowledge of what he was doing. The King James Version reads, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That makes it read like God will provide himself as the lamb. God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. How much of that was Abraham aware of? 
And it says, so the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an offer there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. At this point in his life, Abraham was an absolute master at building these altars. There were altars from Abraham scattered all across Canaan. Everywhere he went, it says, and he built an altar to the Lord, and he built an altar to the Lord. He knew how to build an altar. That's one of his signatures. There's no telling how many of these he's built, but this one was different. Though probably very similar in construction, can you imagine piling the wood onto your son's shoulders to carry up the mountain? Building an altar just like all the others, except on this one, the son you love was to be laid. Stacking the wood that he carried up the mountain for you, preparing the place that he would die. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, let's get the picture here. We don't want to skip, skip through this. Abraham is a hundred years older than Isaac. If Isaac is in his 20s, maybe into his 30s now, Abraham is nearing his 130s. We don't see this if we picture Isaac as a child. Isaac could have wrestled away from Abraham. He could have left Abraham in the dust when they were walking up the mountain. There would have been no physical contest there. Abraham was nearing the end of his life. Sarah, his wife, we'll see a little bit later, died at 127 years old. And she was 10 years younger than Abraham. So at about 130, Abraham's really getting up there. We know he's nearing the end. And I can't imagine him being able to overpower his grown son. That means that Isaac was complicit in this act. Isaac knew what was happening, and he was okay with it. Though he had the strength to run away, he submitted to the will of his father. And in this, we have a picture of Christ. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. His life can't be taken. It must be laid down. He pleaded with his father in the garden that the cup of suffering be taken from him. But God did not remove that cup, and Christ submitted himself to the will of the father, willingly. Philippians 2.8 captures the mind of Christ so succinctly, so beautifully. Philippians 2.8, And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's the mind of Christ. 
And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham now is demonstrating his willingness to obey God. He's ready to follow through. A father willing to sacrifice his son. God let Abraham know a piece of him that he hadn't revealed yet. Abraham was shown the heart of Jehovah. I I just wish that I knew what Abraham's prayers looked like. Before that moment, was Abraham praying, God, would you let me know you more? God, would you show me your heart? Who are you? Show yourself to me. Make yourself known. Oh, how I hope that we mean that when we pray those prayers. This was far more real to Abraham than he could imagine. He felt what the father would feel. He knew the thoughts and emotions of a father as his son was sacrificed. The father's and the son's will working together to provide that sacrifice. God's heart, as his only begotten son, hangs on that cross. That's what Abraham got to experience in this situation. You know, we flippantly say things like, God, if you love me, you'd give me that house. God, if you love me, you'd give me that wife, that husband. God, if you love me, you'd give me that car. God, you love me and you gave me this husband? God, if you love me, you'd make me happy. If you really loved me, you would allow me to be happy. We idolize happiness. Those are all misguided pleas. None of that, the car, the wife, the husband, the house, the happiness, none of that signifies God's love for you. Anytime that God wants to prove his love for us, he points to the cross of Christ. He points to the sacrifice that he provided on our behalf. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15, 13. For God so loved the world. Don't let this slip by you. Everybody knows this. Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's how the love of God was manifest towards us. In this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. That's how God demonstrated his love. Imagine this. Imagine an omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving God. He wants to reveal himself to his creation. He knows all. He is all-powerful, and he is all-loving. How do you reveal that you know all to your creation? Prophecy is a good start. You give them a message that can be authenticated because it tells history in advance. He knows all. He's all-powerful. How can you relay your omnipotence to your creation? Creation itself is a good start. We look around. We can see that God is powerful. He must be outside of this extremely vast universe. We look at the stars, the flaming balls of gas in the sky, and he placed them there. That's a good start to show us his power. Here's a tricky one. How does an all-loving God demonstrate that characteristic to his creation? How does he reveal that part of himself? Goodness, that's a tough one. How about dying for them? How about putting himself in their place to take the punishment for something that they deserve? How's that? That is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. The knife stretched out, ready to follow through with God's command. And this voice from heaven, no doubt God himself, reaches Abraham's ear. Abraham, Abraham. I'm pretty sure Isaac took a deep breath. Pretty sure he said, hey, Dad, did you hear that? (laughs) And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Now that was the plan all along. We have to realize that God was not going to let Abraham sacrifice his son. But he wanted him to feel the emotions that he would feel. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, it's not that God had, has just now learned this, right? God knew it all along, but Abraham just learned it. Abraham just learned that his faith was so strong that he could follow through with this. He's demonstrated it. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. 
instead of his son. This interruption to the flow of the story actually adds to the typology. It doesn't detract from it. The ancient pagan world would have been intimately familiar with child sacrifice. And Canaan certainly was a very pagan place. And Abraham seems to not be surprised at Yahweh's request for his son. However, there's an element to this account that really is unmatched in the ancient world. That's the element of substitutionary atonement. You see, God knew that Abraham was not going to end up killing his son. That was the plan. He wanted to test him to see if he was willing, but the promises he made to Abraham were still in effect, and he knew that Isaac would live. By making that request of Abraham, Abraham had the opportunity to demonstrate his active faith, and God had a chance to reveal yet another timeless truth about the seed of the woman who was to come. That truth, his blood would stand in our place. Substitutionary atonement. His blood in our stead. God provided himself a lamb. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. Although we deserve to be there, his blood is sufficient to cover our account, to telestai, paid in full. Substitutionary atonement is such an important part of the plan for our redemption. Now, by this point, Isaac is just a mess. Uh, I have no doubt. He's shaking uncontrollably, and he probably has a really interesting conversation with his dad going down that mountain. I can't imagine. I wish it was recorded. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That is Jehovah Jireh. Certainly, the Lord made a provision there for Abraham and Isaac. But years later, God would make a provision for all mankind there. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. As Moses writes this, there is this realization that is apparently shared among the people. At this place, the Lord will provide. It's interesting that Moses had that insight. Moses must have been aware of the prophetic aspect of Abraham's actions. And that's one of the reasons I think he was aware as well of what he was doing, at least to a certain extent. Some translations say, King James is one of them, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And in one sense, this is correct. It's not a bad translation, but this seeing is active. The Lord sees in order to act, and the idea is one of provision. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. Again, this is God himself. 
and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So the Lord confirms his promise yet again to Abraham. We don't know if Isaac heard this from the Lord or not, if it was something special to Abraham, or if it was auditory in the sense that Isaac could also hear it. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. It's just like he said. He said, we'll go up and worship, then we'll return to you. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. It's really interesting to note that this account doesn't actually mention Isaac coming down the mountain with Abraham. He may have, or he might have parted ways with him on top of the mountain. You know, just take a step back for a second. And I can't really fault him if he just needed some time away from his dad at that point. But they come together later, and the next time Isaac comes onto the scene, see, Isaac drops out of the scene right here. He's not mentioned until the end of Genesis 24. And that's when he meets with his bride after Eliezer, whose name means comforter, goes out to find this bride for him. Now, I want to make sure that we see this. Isaac who was just dead, figuratively, in his father's mind, for three days, was miraculously resurrected, again, in Abraham's mind, and is out of the narrative until the comforter, Eliezer, has gathered for him a bride, and they meet in the middle of a field. Picking up what I'm putting down? It is just like the death resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Isaac drops out of the scene. Christ ascends to be with his father. While the comforter, Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is working in the world to gather a bride to Christ. When the bride is gathered, Christ will meet her in the air at the rapture. That is the picture that's being painted for us in Genesis. Remarkable. Now, verse 20 through 24 will be important once we make it to chapter 24, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on these few verses right now. But it basically gives you the background of Rebekah, who will be coming into the story later. Verse 20 says, Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, 
also bore Tema, Gaham, Thahash, and Ma'aka. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So obviously Abraham was not there at her death, but he comes to mourn her. Sarah, 127 years old. She's the only woman in the Bible whose age is recorded at her death. You just don't generally say that of a woman, right? She died in the land that would become known as Hebron, meaning fellowship. That's what the name means, fellowship, communion. What a great place to live in. What a great place to spend the rest of your days in fellowship. Fellowship with God. I can't think of a sweeter place to close our eyes in this world. That's where I want to be, in fellowship. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Even now, Abraham's testimony is, I am a foreigner and visitor among you. Even though he was promised their land by God, that was his due inheritance. He still considered himself a foreigner and a visitor. If he was looking for the promised land, as the capstone of his life, well, he found the land. He didn't come into possession of all of it, but he lived in that land probably roughly half his life. A long time. That tells us that there was something else. He still counts himself a visitor and a foreigner in this land. There was something else he was looking for. This wasn't the the end-all, be-all. Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 tells us that it was by faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's the city that he was really after. And he couldn't find it in this world. His home was not found in this world. Even at the end of his life, he considers himself a foreigner. Verse 5. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up, and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price, 
as property for a burial place among you. So now, the sons of Heth and Abraham are having this exchange in which they're bartering for this burial land for Abraham's wife, Sarah. They start into this bargaining with each other, and we have to understand that in this part of the world, it was considered rude not to engage in some kind of a bartering, in some kind of a haggling, right? This was a respectful exchange between these two. But often, it's, it really seems to get heated from our Western perspective. But really, it's respectful. So now, verse 10, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. He says, you don't have to pay me anything. And this is another cultural thing, right? You don't have to pay me anything. Just take it. It's fine. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you the money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. So they continue their bargaining, but you'll notice that they're actually advocating for the other position. The guy that's selling says, I'll give it to you for free. Abraham says, I'll pay you full price. It's interesting to us. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. <laughs> the land now, if he was wanting to give it to, to Abraham for free, would he mention what it was worth? Listen to me, the land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. That was actually a very high price for this land. He, he gave him a really high offer and expecting Abraham to say, how about I give you 200 shekels of silver? Watch what Abraham does. And Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which, we had, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. He bought it outright. Everything that the guy said it was worth, which was a highball offer, he paid. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. And that's where chapter 23 closes with the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her burial. Boy, I hope that you see 
why Genesis 22 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. There is so much there. And if we continued to dive into it, I have no doubt that the depth just keeps going. You know, I, I don't know if you could ever exhaust it. The typology that is, is there is just astounding. Every little detail in this interaction between Abraham and Isaac, his son, points straight to the Father and Jesus Christ. What a wonderful little passage of Scripture. Now, if you're here with us this morning, and we don't do this always, but it seems fitting this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've not confessed your faith in him, placed your faith in him, I'd invite you to do that this morning. There is no better time. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. If you don't know him, get to know him. It's remarkable. It, there are no words for the depth of relationship that you can have with the man who paid it all for you. It's the most meaningful and most important relationship that you can have on earth. You got to know him. There is nothing more important. There is nothing greater in the world. You know, the world will lie to you. It'll tell you that, you know, there's happiness, there's success, there's riches in anything else to keep you away from Jesus. But if you know Jesus Christ, you know the creator of the universe. There, there is nothing greater than a personal relationship with him. And this is the day to start that relationship. If you have any questions, come talk to me afterwards and we can get it all sorted out. I love each and every one of you. Thank you for being here. Let's wrap up in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.